Well, good morning again. It is good to be with everybody. We're going to double check. Our notes work. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, so we, one of the most frustrating things for me as a, as a parent of little ones, babies, toddlers, you know, young kids, uh, is, is what I would call very affectionately unjustified awfulness. Uh, right? we, all, we all have times where we've had a rough day, where we're tired, we do this as adults, especially in kids. You've all had, you know, if you're a parent, you've known the toddler that you've kept up an hour past their bedtime, and you know that that's just a recipe for disaster, and so when they act out or they go crazy or they've had a long day, you have, you have an understanding as a parent. It's very easy to sympathize with, with our kids, but what I call unjustifiable awfulness is, is when our kids lose it under what I would say are optimal conditions. I had this the other day. Um, I, I, I was on Fridays is my day off, and so I'm home with both kids. Britta is off on Mondays, and so we each kind of have one day of the week where we get to just be alone with our, with our kids. And so I decided about two weeks ago that on Friday, I was going to set out to create for my children the optimal day. The parents that are chuckling know that that's a pipe dream. <laughs> Right? But, but I thought, you know what? We're going to do this right. So I'm, my phone is not going to be near me. I'm going to put it away so that they don't, you know, I don't have the temptation to kind of ignore kids because we get addicted to our devices now. So I'm just gonna, not even going to have it on my body. I'm just going to put it away. From the moment they get up, we're going to have muffins for breakfast, and we're going we're gonna to play with the toys they want to play with, and we're going to get them wild and entertained and get the, you know, the, all, the, all the wiggles out right away. And then we're going to go have fun. And for lunch, we're going to go to McDonald's and get Happy Meals because McDonald's Happy Meals are the one thing the children will always eat, no matter what. And not only that, but why would we eat them at home or at McDonald's when we can eat them at a playground and then play until they are so tired that nap isn't even an effort because they'll just fall asleep in the car and I can drop them the optimal day. As you can imagine, things did not go optimally. Um, it was one of the worst days. Uh, from the very beginning, kids were just screaming all the time. Um, you know, you want, you want nuggets? Yes, I want nuggets. When you get there, I wanted a burger, and things were terrible, and we spent about five minutes at the playground. My daughter, who's one and a half, was just crying no matter what. She cried and pointed to the ground she wanted to put down. When I put her down, she turned around and, and hit me and cried and put her hands back up because she wanted to be up. And after about six or seven of those up-downs for maybe five, ten minutes at the playground, I called the day, and I barely got them home and into their beds. You know, it was one of those days where I wish there were bolts on the outside of the door and soundproofing so I could just lock them in and pretend they didn't exist. It was the worst day. Of course, right? The optimal day doesn't exist. There's times where we have hard days and it's normal, but there's times when we just try to create perfection and it just doesn't work. And it can be maddening to have that. It's easy to feel alone in those moments. If you're part of parent groups, you kind of get to talk about it and you know that everybody struggles through that. But it's really hard when we work to make things optimal for our kids. And then the response is just utter despair and anger and resentment that comes our way. Right? And we know it's because they're babies or toddlers or they don't know any better, but they're still a part of us. It's like, but what if I told you that God himself actually has those moments? God himself has times where he laments and has kind of the, the, the mindset of, the, of a parent that's just trying to make it happen and it just doesn't happen. And what if I told you that God not only has those moments, but we actually have accounts of it in Scripture where we see the heart of the Lord 
pour himself out in the same way that parents pour themselves out when they try to create the optimal life and day for their kids, but it just completely, utterly falls apart. If you've ever felt that, if you felt that weight, if you felt that frustration, if you felt that inability to do anything about it, no matter how hard you try, you might know a little tiny sliver of what the heart of the Lord is. Today, we're hitting the halfway point of our study on the minor prophets. We're hitting our halfway point in, in two ways. We're in week six of 12, so by the end of today, we're going to be halfway done with our weeks. Uh, but we're also today covering the prophet Micah, and Micah 3.12 is actually the, if you looked at all the verses of all the minor prophets, it's like the halfway point in terms of amount of words, too. So Micah 3.12 is literally the halfway point. So if you're deciding to read through the minor prophets, when you hit Micah 3.12, you would be halfway done with your reading uh, of that. So it's kind of a neat half and half uh, that we're hitting today. But we're going to look at the prophet Micah and the prophetic writings of him. And Micah is a unique prophet in some ways, uh, but in others, not so much. In many ways, Micah's prophecies come down to their structure. They're this abbreviated version of the prophet Isaiah. See, Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. They, They functioned and prophesied in the 8th century around the same time and roughly the same area. They were looking at southern kingdom prophecy and they were talking about the Assyrians and really looking long forward to the Babylonian exile of Judah. But they were prophesying about the same time and they're very, very, very similar in how they function. You could almost say that Micah is kind of the cliff note of Isaiah. So if you were going to commit to a study and you looked at the book of Isaiah and you go, that is a long book. It would take me a long time to go through. You can start with the Cliff Note version and read the book of Micah. As a matter of fact, there are parts of Micah and Isaiah that actually are almost verbatim the same. If you look at the opening verses of, of Micah 4 and Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4 on each of those, you'll actually notice that it's almost the same exact wording. All right, I won't put that up for the sake of today, but that could be a fun go home and get you to open your Bibles and compare that. Micah 4 and Isaiah 2. And you can see that they're writing about a lot of the same things. They're writing with the same structure. They're writing with the same patterns. And so Micah was preaching to the southern kingdom, and he was warning about the Assyrian destruction. And you might say, hold it, Vince. Um, Assyria is the northern kingdom, right? It was northern kingdom falls to Assyria, and then many, many, many years later, southern kingdom falls to Babylon. Why is a southern kingdom prophet talking about Assyria? Well, you'll note that when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, there, there were attempts made at conquering the south too. The south didn't fall to Assyria, But it certainly had to contend with Assyria. And Assyria came close to destroying Jerusalem. We'll look into that a little more a little later here. But the south was attacked by Assyria, but survived by the grace of God. And one of the things you'll note is that God actually used Micah to make this happen. Let's look real quickly. This isn't our text today, but let's look at um, Jeremiah 26, verses 18 through 19. Micah Micah of Moresheth, same guy, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he said to all the peoples of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountains of the house of a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord? Or did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. What we see is Micah was prophesying 
to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and the resulting uh, kind of the result is that Hezekiah repents, and there's a relenting of the Lord. And so Micah's prophecy is responsible, and in many ways, the Lord uses him to save Judah from Assyria. So that initial onslaught is thwarted, and they're not conquered until much later. Right? So under Micah's prophecy, there's a, a saving that takes place there. There's a pattern to how Micah prophesies, and it's what we will call oracles. And he has these alternating oracles of judgment and hope. And so as we go through the the chapters of the text, what we see is he pronounces very specific judgments and they get more and more increasing. And then he follows each of those up with a glimmer of hope, right? Some prophets just speak doom for a whole lot of time. Uh, Some prophets throw a little bit of hope to you in the last couple verses. Micah's kind of a, Israel, you're terrible. The Lord has this against you. But but, but there's hope. Don't, don't, Don't fret. There's a goodness to the, the suffering that you're about to have. And here is some of the specific things he has against you. But, but wait, there's a goodness to the things that you're going to go through. And the Lord is going to bring you out on the other side. And here's how it's going to look. And, and as he continues on, he gets more and more detailed. Right? In fact, one of Micah's themes in the whole book is really the idea of growth and holiness that are brought on by pain and suffering. And in Micah, more than many, we see the pattern of the Lord using pain and suffering in our lives, right? Not that every pain and suffering you endure is God working in you. Some of it's just sin in the world. But the Lord certainly uses pain and suffering to get our attention, to turn us in a 180 fashion, to pull us away from ways that we shouldn't go and towards ways that we should. The Lord will use pain to course correct us. We've talked about that many times, right? So an idea of a Christianity without suffering is kind of an oxymoron. But Micah is very, very intent on you understanding that growth and holiness is the result of suffering and pain, and the Lord is not above using that. God's judgment doesn't just have to be his anger, but it can be his loving reproof and his correction as well. And the result of judgment and discipline of the Lord is really never about just inflicting pain, but about bringing us into a deeper relationship and holiness with him. This morning, I want to zero in on one of the final rounds of this indictment that Micah kind of speaks of over and over again in chapter 6. And the end of chapter 6 is one of those verses that we all know, but we'll, we'll get there towards the very end. And the reason is that in this round, Micah follows judgment with a discussion about how we should change and what we should do. Right? A lot of times we read these prophets and there's the question comes, well, what do we do? Right? And this is one of those times in Scripture where or through the, the prophetic words of Micah, God just kind of tells us. Right? How often have you read verses where you're like, great, I just, God, tell me what to do. Right? I don't get it. Just, just speak. Just, just can you be clear for once and just say, just, Vince, do this and things will go well for you. And you can say, okay. Right? Micah 6 is one of those times where we get just a clear directive. And so this morning, that's what we're after. Right? We want to we look at how he indicts his people and how his call upon their lives shapes the way that we move and live and have our being with him. So I would invite us to stand as we read uh, together the words of the prophet Micah in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people. 
and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I, I, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened to Shittim and Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a a thousand of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God indeed. You can be seated. So right off the bat, you can know that this is a a judgment or indictment because the Lord uses a lot of legal language. If you're a lawyer, you would have probably heard your ears perk up, right? There's there's specific words that make it very clear. Um, Things like plead your case or indictment of the Lord. Uh, He says, you will contend with Israel. Again, in in verse 2, an indictment against the people. There's this clear legal language. The Lord is making a case. There's times in Scripture where the Lord just says, you have done wrong in my sight. And then there's times where the Lord kind of builds a case. Lawyers just don't walk into courtrooms and say, you are guilty, and that's the end of it. Lawyers have to make a case for that guilt. They have to convince a jury of that guilt. And so sometimes the Lord is very legal, not legalistic, but legal in the way that he approaches his people. He reasons with them and presents his case for the indictment of what they have done wrong. And that's what we see here. What's interesting is that the Lord doesn't just tell them they're wicked. He pleads with them. And we see it right off the bat in verse 3. Oh, my people. He says, what have I done to you? It's, this, it's the parent-child kind of natural thing, right? If you're a parent, you have at some point in the last week probably, even if you have adult kids, said, what have I done to you? Right? It's the Lord kind of just saying, look, what have I, what, what, where did I go wrong here? What, what, did I, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Is there something that I've, that I've done to somehow get you to, to act the way you're acting, to walk the way you're walking, to forsake me the way you're forsaking me? Because from where I'm standing, I've, I've done nothing but bless you. Have I not brought you from the land of Egypt? Were you not nothing but slaves, suffering away day by day until I called you out of that place out of slavery, and I brought you across the sea, and I made you my people, and I gave you the law, not to restrict your life, but to tell you how, what it looks like to be God's people. I gave you, through the law, an identity, a way of existing, and a way of, of being. Didn't I redeem you from slavery, and I gave you leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam? I called these people up so that you might be led well. And then we get to verse 5. Verse 4 and 5 are, are kind of a, a case against the idea that he has wronged them. 
uh, and he records his immense blessings and faithfulness. But verse 4 and 5 are, are tough, or verse 5, sorry, is really tough if we don't kind of understand the names and, uh, of people and places. Um, but if you were an Israelite, these names and places would have struck an instant chord with you. And so we have to take a little bit of a look at what each of them are. Verse 5 is, is, uh, is a real tough one here. Um, Balak was the king of Moab, and as the Israelites were crossing into um, into the you know, into the promised land, as they were getting ready to go in, they, they, they came past Moab, and Balak was their king and terrified of the size of the Israelite army that he encounters. Right? We can see some of this stuff happening in, in Numbers 22 and, and onward. Right? But what we see is that Balak calls upon the prophet Balaam to speak curses against Israel for his own protection. He hires him. He says, look, can you go up on the hill and from the top of the hill curse the, the Israelites so that I might be safe? Because the reputation you have is that when you bless people, they're blessed, and when you curse people, they're cursed. You seem to be pretty good at this thing. And so he calls upon Balaam to curse the Israelites, but Balaam is visited by the Lord, and every time he tries to pronounce a curse upon them, instead the words that have come out are of words of blessing. And if you read the, the blessings of Balaam in, in Numbers, what you'll find is some of the, the most like unbelievably delightful and beautiful praise for God's people. It's one of the most beautiful blessings in all of Scripture that Balaam pronounces upon the Israelites. It's really cool to read, actually. And so here he's hired to curse them, but as the Lord restricts his abilities, he's not able to. He calls him to instead bless. And so what, what God is saying here, he's recounting a time that they were blessed more than any other time. And then when we go on in verse 5, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. The, the city of Shittim was the last place before crossing the Jordan into the promised land. And the place of Gilgal was the first place after they crossed into the promised land. And so when you put those cities together, right, they first get up to it, but they don't get to enter in and they wander and then they eventually get to go in. Really, when you say from Shittim to Gilgal, it's a kind of metaphor for the entire redemptive history of their people up to this point. He's saying, listen, from the moment you were here until I brought you to conclusion into the promised land, have I not been with you all this time? Have I not given you every blessing and every opportunity and everything you've, your heart could ever want? Have I not been with you? Have I not allowed your enemies to be conquered by you, even against insurmountable odds and numbers? Every step you have taken has been under my guide and my care and my love for you. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? That you could be so wickedly against me and so farly strayed from my ways. Right? It's the parents of the teenager that's like from the very beginning. Haven't I done everything? I made you. I was there the day that you were born and rejoiced. I was there when you took your first steps and I held your hands. I kept you alive against all odds of you trying to jump off of playgrounds all your whole life and play sports where you've been injured. Somehow you made it to 18. I've had sleepless nights more than I can count. I have endured words of I hate you when I know that you love I've done everything a parent could do to demonstrate love to you. What is going on? How have I wronged you so terribly? Right? That's the indictment that God is bringing against his people. 
but yet you keep forsaking me. I don't get it. I provided you the optimal day. Sometimes our days don't feel optimal, but trust me, the Lord provides you the optimal day. He carries you and he's with you and he guides you and he shapes you. And sometimes all we do is yell and scream on the playground like a toddler in response. So then in in verse 6, Mike kind of switches gears. He goes from speaking as the Lord, kind of the Lord third person kind of thing. He goes in verse 6 back to speaking as himself, Micah. And he asks these series of rhetorical questions, right? He says this, with, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Are you saying, like, should I, what am I going to bring to God to somehow earn or justify his favor? Should I bring a bunch of rams if I, if I, if I rock a bunch of goats and bring them? If, what's the number that I need to hit, right? Um, will he be pleased with a thousand rams? What about 10,000 rivers of oil? He just keeps getting more and more kind of crazy. And then he says at the very end, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Right? Maybe God's after my firstborn son. Maybe that's enough of a, a payment, right? And there's almost meant to be this humorous kind of language if the Israelites' belief wasn't so sad. See, because... What's happening is that it's exactly what the Israelites are doing. They are going through all these rituals and motions in order to try to appease and please the Lord. And what Micah is trying to tell them is, look, like, do you think there's a number of bulls that could somehow make up for your mess? Do you think if you spill enough bull blood, do you really think that the God of the universe who creates and loves us and carries us out of Egypt and does all these things, do you really think like, like blood of animals is somehow what he's after, that, that's, that, that he's so simplistic that, that if we just slaughter enough stuff, it'll bring him satisfaction somehow? Do you really think that that's what the sacrificial system is about? It's a number, it's a, it's a quota that you have to hit that will get you the favor? Because that's what they were doing. They were going through all the practices that God had commanded them. And, and Micah's not bashing the sacrificial system here, but he's trying to put it in its right context. Saying, look, like this, this sacrificial system doesn't exist to get us into a right place with God. It exists to show us something. It's a band-aid on the, on the problem that we need a much greater, much more grandiose solution for that we don't yet have. It's supposed to open our eyes to our need of him. It doesn't actually fulfill our obligations to him. That's what he's trying to say here. He's building a case that this isn't what God is after. Even and then in verse 8, Micah gives us the punchline. And I love the shift. He goes from this veiled, you know, question and answer, like, is my firstborn enough? To all of a sudden, he gets very, very clear. And he says, no, he doesn't want any of that. He has told you guys what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? If you want to know what God wants from you, like he's told you. If you actually take a moment to stop the rituals and just listen to the things that God has commanded you over the years, you know exactly what God wants, and here's what it is. But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What's good to God? To love justice and kindness and humility. And what do those three things have in common? Justice and kindness and humility. They're far less actions and far more heart issues. Right? What Micah's saying is, 
look, you guys, are, you guys have all the, the cultish practices now, and you, you go through all the rituals, you show up in church, you do all those things, but, but I'm after your heart. God's after your heart. And your hearts are wicked. The, the beautiful things about, you know, we could have a whole sermon series where we talk about, well, what does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to love kindness? What does it mean to walk humbly? But the reality is this. If your heart is after God and it's in the right place and it's seeking after him, those things are things that naturally flow from a right heart. You don't have to learn how to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Those are things that are naturally occurring things if your heart is in the right place. When you have a heart after God, when you confront yourself with the identity that you possess apart from him and then with him since he has engrafted you into his family and made you his child and washed you clean, and when your heart is after that response and and comes face to face with the realities of who you are and who God is and who you are in, in light of him, when your heart sinks in the midst of that and rejoices as a result of that, One of the natural outpouring results is that you will begin to do justice and to love kindness and certainly to walk in humility. Right? What Mike is trying to say here is like if you if you somehow think that you can pay God for what he has done for you, you can't. There's not enough bulls in the world that you can slaughter to atone for the mess that you've caused just today. And the good news is that you don't have to. God doesn't want your payment. God's not collecting on the debt. God is forgiving the debt. And all he wants in response is your heart. He wants your heart. He doesn't want all my accolades and all my works of righteousness. Those are things that flow naturally from a right heart. He wants you. He's asking for justice and kindness and humility because they're heart issues. Right? Those are things that just happen. When my kids were acting crazy on the playground, do you know why I was mad at them? It's not because they were misbehaving. It wasn't an obedience issue. It wasn't because they were being disobedient to their father, who I believe has a God-given right to respect by the nature of the fact that I just made and helped make my kids, you know? That's not why I was mad. It wasn't a disobedience thing. It was a, I worked to create a day for them that was full of joy, that allowed them to be exactly who they were. I created an optimal day, and I watched how they miserably rebelled instead of living into it. My anger and disappointment wasn't at their behavior. It was about the fact that they were missing out on on a wonderful day that they could have had. Half the time that I get frustrated at my kids, it's if if you just listened, things would be so good for you. Right? Like it's it's not that I'm like, if you just listened, I would be happier. Although that's a great result. We want that too. But really, we want our kids to listen because right, they're, they're, they're this big and we're this big and, and life experience tells us that we kind of know what's best. We've been there. And as parents, our role is that we, we create, what we, what we do what we can to create an optimal day, to, to bring them into the fullness of life, to help them be who God designed them to be. 
And if they listened, they would live into that identity. See, God, as our Father, functions in the same way. He doesn't want your obedience out of some sense of duty. He wants your obedience because he created you for his glory. He wants you to have a life that is full and abundant, that is optimal. Because the result is that you will give praise to him and glorify God forever. Right? We can get technical here, and when we look at things like Westminster, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. God wants you to have joy. He wants you to obey and walk in his ways because he knows, because he's a little bit smarter than you are, that those things will bring ultimately more joy. Maybe not in the exact moment. There's things that make you happier right here. But God is a big picture God while we are tiny, small picture humans. And we don't understand the sum total of how God has designed the world to work. And he's just saying, look, I want your heart because if you follow me and you take your heart and you send it after me, you will have abundant joy. I'm trying to give you the optimal day. And you're crying about stupid stuff. It's funny until we realize that it's true. And it's funny when we think about our own kids. It's a little less funny when we think of ourselves as God's kids, rebelling in the same ways that we get mad at our children for rebelling, but on a much larger scale and playing field. And so Micah's condemnation and judgment has very little to do with, a, with an obedience culture, with a God wants things a certain way. He's, he's very much rigid and regimented, and this is how God wants you to live. And, you know, I don't like that he tells me what to do. Well, don't, it doesn't matter. You have to do what God says because otherwise he'll smite you. No, God wants your heart because God knows that if he has your heart, you will have a life filled with joy. The pains of this world are nothing but a result of rebellion against the God of the universe. That's why we long when we talk about come again soon. Right? We say that because we know that there's a time coming when rebellion's not part of the equation. When all this stuff that we struggle with now on this earth becomes natural, when things are restored fully back to pre-sin levels, when God's return in the new Jerusalem allows us to press into and live into fully the reality of God. Can you even imagine a, a, a time, a life, a, a universe where you don't struggle to live in sin, where your natural inclination is towards the things of the Lord, and we just get to enjoy that and glorify him? Right? That's what we long for as followers of Christ. And as Micah is pronouncing judgments upon the people, he's saying, look, this is, this is meant to, to steer you towards having eyes towards that future. And by the way, that future is coming because God is, is working. He's working out plans that go so far beyond kingdoms like Assyria or Babylon. The Lord is working in a universe where Assyria and Babylon are just blips on the radar that we study in history books. And all you know is the here and now, and what God knows is the infinite. And so there is a hope coming that will make all this suffering seem like child's play. That's what Micah tells us. And so the question for you is, are you going to live into the midst of that? Are you going to finally stop wearing the burden of religious obligation and find yourself seeking after God's heart? 
Is your Christian life lived out of a sense of duty? Or is it lived out of a sense of, of, of trust that it's better? That no matter what the world sells you, no matter how compelling it is, that you trust that you serve a God who knows better and who's willing, who's willing to lay his life down for the sake of redeeming you. Our only response to a God like that is, you know what, I'm going to trust you. No matter what. I'm going to walk in that obedience. Not out of guilt, not out of fear, not out of a sense of, if I don't, he'll smite me to hell, but out of a sense of understanding that God is after a fullness of life that we can't even imagine today. Right? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you call people like Micah over the course of history to prophesy, to speak your hard truths into the hearts and minds of your people. We praise you that through your writing of Scripture, through your inspiration, that we can read those words today, that we ourselves can be reminded. Lord, sometimes your word feels a little bit like a kick in the teeth, but Lord, you will, will do anything you need to in order to draw our hearts to you because you know it's what's ultimately best for us. Because you are our Abba, our Father. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, that you would equip us and shape us to know you more. That you would just start to tear down the, the places where we lack trust, where we want to hold on. That you would wear down our, our rebellious nature and just cause us to fall more deeply in love with you. As we gather and we worship and we spend time together in fellowship that you would just continue to work and renew our heart and to break down the walls of the things that keep us from you. We pray for our hearts. We pray that you would work on them like a surgeon until all that's left is a pure trust and a pure love until the day you come again. And Lord, come soon. We love you and praise you. And all people said, Amen.